So really what it comes down to, it is Jason Kenney fundamentally, you know, does not want to govern. He wants to rule. He wants to impose what he wants to impose. He wants to force through his agenda, but he is utterly unwilling to be the kind of leader that Albertans need, which is someone who is willing to pivot, who is willing to set their agenda aside for the public good and put public health and safety first. No, Jason Kenney, it's about holding on to power and forcing through his agenda, and we see where that's gotten us now. Forgotten Corner Podcast would not exist without our listeners. If you enjoy the work we are doing on this show and would like to support further, please consider a donation through our Patreon account, patreon.com backslash Forgotten Corner Pod, or visit our website, ForgottenCornerPod.com. Welcome back to the Forgotten Corner Podcast. We acknowledge that the Forgotten Corner occupies unceded Indigenous land. We acknowledge that the Blackfoot Confederacy never surrendered their land in the signing of Treaty 7, but agreed to share it. The Forgotten Corner sits on Treaty 7 and Treaty 4 territory, traditional lands of the Siksika, Kainai, Pekani, Stony Nakoda, and Sutina, as well as the Cree, Sioux, and Soto brands of the Ojibwa peoples. We also honor and acknowledge that we are on the Métis Nation within Region 3. The Forgotten Corner is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, and if you'd like to check out other progressive podcasts such as this from across the country, click the link we will provide in our show notes. My name is Scott Schmidt. I am here alongside my co-host, Jeremy Appel. Mr. Appel, how the heck are you? Hello, I, I'm doing pretty well. Pretty well. Um, you know, the elections are on Monday and, uh, you know, sort of uh, the past year I focused, I've been yeah. focusing like very hard on uh the this is sort of it calgary so that's yeah it's the moment of truth yeah i feel like my brain is like gearing up just like i've been sort of revving towards this one thing and like oh my god i can't even freaking wait for tuesday morning although i'm also a little bit like as a journalist i cannot wait for tuesday morning to just be done dealing with all of the like i how many different choices we have to make all the people that we have to choose from that kind of thing and just dealing with that but like i'm also a little bit nervous because yeah well like um, who's gonna win and where and like well, i think you my pretty much i don't know we can ask our uh maybe our guest today will give us his thoughts on it but i'm pretty right. sure He's from what i'm reading edmonton that expert. uh uh edmonton looks pretty locked up but Calgary's quite tight yeah, and, but I think I think that it is going to be a huge backlash against Kenny, and we're going to have a lot more progressives elected than uh, one might. You think uh, it'll be a backlash against Kenny regarding what? Regarding everything. Re- re- like, do you think regarding, people are going to vote uh, no to equalization to get back at Kenny? That's what Drew <laughs> Barnes thinks. Uh, I think we're going to vote yes for equalization. Right. Yes. Well, but, yes but, but, is what but they a want. vote for no is yes for equalization, right? Well, that's what I'm saying. Like a vote yeah. for yes is what the Canadian Taxpayers Federation and the UCP and that kind of people are wanting you to vote for, right? Like that's to we're vote. Yes means take it out of the constitution, right? Which, so which I is, think it's going to be a no. Yeah. Um, 
I, I think that Gondek will win in Calgary. Um, I don't think it will be like a blowout like Nenshi in yeah. uh, 2014. Or, uh, yeah, I think Medicine Hat's going to possibly, I mean, it, by the time this comes out, it'll be over. So I can say, but I think Lindsay Clark will win in Medicine Hat. I think it's like yeah. one of those well, ones where it's going to be kind of like 35% wins, but um yeah. Anyway, it's going to be interesting, but it could go other, it could go other directions, right? Like the poll suggest it might go in a, in a, I don't want to say a progressive direction, but certainly a not that shit crazy direction. Have, have there been a lot of polls for the medicine hat race? There's been a couple of like, I wouldn't call them official polls. They're not exactly ledger polls, but um, you can't tell what is okay. Oh, did Mosin, what's medicine up, hat do a poll? What's up? Those polls on Facebook are not even close to an accurate representation of who will be voting in Medicine Hat on election day. I mean, I I'm feel not, like I was, I mean, that's a, I'm yes, just okay. making it very clear. I'm not <laughs> okay. saying who's winning, yeah. but a, right. a nine to I thought that's what I meant by they're not official, but yes. Ridiculous. <laughs> they are. Anyways, uh, who knows, but um, it's going to be close. I, it's going to be between Lindsay and Ted, I think. Yeah. And then you watch Alan Rose will be the mayor and we'll look like idiots and have to re-record this entire beginning. That, anyways, let's get to the show. because He's like, is- he's the CTF guy, right? Rate Payers Association. So yes, it's a subsidiary of the Canadian yeah, Taxpayers. I mean, they're all... They so all, it's a different, it's yeah. a different, gra- it's not, these guys aren't in the garage. They're in the shed, like off in the corner. <laughs> okay. Anyway, uh, let's get to the show today because we got lots we want to talk about and he's very patiently watching us banter. So, um, Ready, ready, Jerome? I can't see you, so I'm just going to assume yes. He is in his second term as the MLA for Edmonton City Centre, a former member of the Alberta NDP government caucus and current member of the official opposition for which he serves as critic to the health ministry. David Shepard likely didn't anticipate his shadow cabinet role to be quite so chaotic when he was appointed to it, but over the past 20-ish months, there has been plenty to critique. We are extremely pleased to welcome David to the show this week, where we hope our listeners will learn a little bit about who he is and what makes him tick, as well as his perspective on the government's handling of the pandemic, public employee relations, privatizations, and a whole lot more. Mr. Shepard, welcome to the Forgotten Corner. Oh, thanks, Scott. Hey, guys. Pleasure to be here. It's nice to see you on the Saturday morning. Um, What's it? I don't know. You guys are both all in. You, you and Jeremy are in Edmonton. Is it nice up there? It's gonna be like 25 in Medicine Hat today. 25. I yeah. think we're looking at a high of about 15 in Edmonton today. So. That's actually not but too bad. Not too bad. It, we're, we're feeling this sort of crisp fall air. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Um, so I don't know if you've uh, had a chance ever to listen to some of your colleagues come on the show, but we have, when we bring guests on, we, we force them to uh, dive right back into their own history and talk a lot about themselves to start. And we want our listeners to know about David Shepard, man, before we talk about politics and uh, the you know chaotic mess that we're all living for a single day. Uh, so if you don't mind taking us back a little bit and just kind of start from kind of where you're from, where you grew up and tell us a little bit about your uh, childhood and what sort of makes you tick. Uh, sure thing. So uh, born and raised right here in Edmonton, my uh, parents, both of them, uh, their families, came, well, my parents 
my mom's family came over from the Netherlands back in 1948. So just after World War II, lost most of most everything they had. So came to Canada, ended up farming out by Westlock, just a little bit north of Edmonton. So mom grew up out there. She was about three, four years old when they came over and then came into Edmonton to go to nursing school. Uh, my father from Trinidad came up in his early 20s. So uh, had done his electrical ticket, looking for work, came up to Canada, settled down in Edmonton, and the two of them met at this little church here in Edmonton, Sharon Gospel Chapel, uh, married within a couple years. And that was the environment I grew up in, mostly uh, the white evangelical uh, fundamentalist church. That was that was my world that I grew up in as a kid. Uh, what was to, that like for you? I mean, you're growing up in a predominantly white place. Was, was it, did you, were you sort of uh, forced to be adamantly aware of that difference of yourself to other people when you were growing up in a, do you know what I mean? In a, uh, was it, did people kind of look at you differently? To be honest, not really. And it's not something I was terribly aware of, you know, for, for my father, when he, uh, when he converted to Christianity at the age of 16, for him, that meant he, he determined that meant giving up everything to do pretty much with his culture in Trinidad. So he didn't really participate. So dad was always someone that spoke very proper English. That was very important to him uh, in the way he expressed himself. So I, I did not grow up with much of a sense of black identity or the, or I, I had no sense even that I was black. Sure, I recognized it. Hey, we were the only black family in that church and largely within that particular evangelical community and denomination. But it wasn't anything that was really commented on or really brought up. And so I grew up in an environment where just, yeah, it wasn't really a thing for better or for worse. Uh, it wasn't until much later in life that I really came to think about the fact that I had black heritage and black identity and started to connect with it. What, and I, I assume there was a point in your life where you decided to kind of go back and reconnect with some of that heritage? Yeah, and frankly, it was after I was elected. You know, really? in 2015. Yeah, no, I, I was elected. You know, when I ran in 2015, I didn't even think about the fact that I was a black candidate. Didn't occur to me. Uh, and so, you know, I ran, I was elected. It was after I ele was elected, I found out that I was only the third black person ever elected in the province of Alberta to the provincial legislature. And I started getting invited out to events with some of the African and Caribbean community groups. And I saw how much it meant to them to have somebody that looked like them in political office. And not only that, but coming to see them, I can't tell you how many times I, I had groups tell me, hey, well, I've never had an MLA come here before. So that it was sort of that began the process. And I decided, okay, this is something I need to make a priority and I need to invest some of my time and effort in as an MLA, that representation. And then secondly, 2016, I was invited to speak at a number of events for Black History Month. I admittedly had never been to a Black History Month event before. So it was at that point that I actually sat down with my dad and said, okay, let's talk about this. What was it like when you actually showed up in Canada in 1967? Because he'd sort of given a little few hints here and there. And it was like, yeah, there were not many black people in Edmonton at that time. And so talking through that, what his experience was like, and then started to do some research and then sort of learning about, you know, the extensive black history in the province of Alberta, the early settlers that came in the early 1900s, and even a number of figures before that going back into the fur trade. So that was really the point at which I started connecting it here in Alberta. I mean, I had dug into it a little bit earlier, uh, I think starting around 2012 or so, 
with the uh, and the events in the states around Black Lives Matter, so the murders of Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown. Uh, I had started following some Black journalists and activists on Twitter and just recognizing, okay, these are Black people who've had a very different experience of life than I've had. And I want to try to understand this better. And so it was a lot of reading and listening and trying, trying to learn and understand. Uh, but it was later after I was elected, that I really started digging into what that meant for me as a black man here in Alberta. Like growing up in, you know, a predominantly white community and going to a predominantly white church, did, did you not feel uh, like discrimination at any point or being othered? I can't really look at any, too many instances in my life where I can say, yeah, I saw direct overt racism directed towards myself. Uh, there was one time I remember I was like five or six. We were at a public campground and I heard a kid use the N word. And it's like, OK, what's that about? I uh, wasn't really familiar with it. I mean, I remember watching my dad watching the Roots miniseries sort of in the late 70s there, but I wasn't really too aware of what was going on or what was sort of involved with that. You know, there was a, yeah, there was a, you know, typical jock bully in high school, I think who made a reference to my hair, you know, called me pube head or something like that. Uh, those are sort of about the only things I can look at and kind of go, yeah, that was direct overt racism. But then again, uh, I was a kid that had some fairly severe social anxiety. So I, you know, I, I always felt <laughs> under scrutiny and kind of under threat or under attack from most of the world around me. So it would have been probably hard for me to at some times to tease maybe more less overt, you know, racism. I'm sure I encountered it, systemic racism, other instances, but it probably was hard for it to penetrate through the general anxiety that I pretty much always felt. So so to jump into something more fun to talk about. You're, you're really into music. And yeah. uh, one thing, actually, you and I just had a quick uh, exchange a, a while ago um, because friend of our show, Dr. Roberta Lexier from Mount Royal University, her husband, Darcy Johnstone, and you yes. have played together at times in your life. So um, can we uh, talk about sort of when, how old were you when you started to get into music and, and was it a, was it something that was prevalent within your family or is it something you found to deal with the social anxiety? How, what, what led you to that? So uh, I started piano lessons when I was maybe seven or eight years old. I mean, all all four of us kids in our family have one older sister, two younger. I'm the only boy. Uh, but we all did piano lessons. Uh, my mom uh, plays plays a, a little bit of piano. She plays the accordion. I think she was sort of largely self-taught. But uh, yeah, she wanted us to take music lessons. So we all took piano lessons. My sisters all quit pretty quickly. And I was just, again, I was just a kid that didn't make much fuss. So I just kind of kept going and showing up. It was a Royal Conservatory. And so I wasn't particularly enjoying any of it, but it, I didn't hate it enough that I decided I wanted to quit. But when I was about 13 years old, I had finished grade six Royal Conservatory and we changed piano teachers. And my new piano teacher sat down with mom and said, look, he's not that good at classical, you know, why don't, why don't we, why don't I try taking them out of the classical and I'll teach him a little bit about how to play by ear. So I, I went into that first lesson and she sort of sat down and said, okay, so I want to do something for me. You know, do you know this song? I forget what song is, but it's a song that we sang at church. I said, yeah. She said, okay, I want you to go home and figure it out, figure it out, find the melody on the piano. So, oh, okay. So I went home and I did that. And then she started showing me how to add some stuff with the left hand and what chords were about and how to read. And that just clicked for me. It was all of a sudden, oh, 
This is something that I can explore, that I can do myself. I can find my own music. I can write my own songs. And so that is when I sort of fell in love with music. So I spent a lot of time just sitting at the piano, fooling around, finding notes, finding combinations, trying to discover different things. You know, I had my Christian contemporary music books. I had a Michael W. Smith volume, and I think a White Heart book and a few other things. And so I got into really got into Christian rock music. I started writing my own songs. Uh, thankfully, all those have been lost to time. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's it's yeah, it was something, you know, I I I loved. And so that was going to be, that was my career ambition. I was going to be uh, a youth pastor, but I was going to be a cool youth pastor who played in a Christian rock band. And yeah, that's, it just became something that, yeah, I could really express myself in. So you were big into Christian music. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I wasn't allowed to listen to anything else. So. Oh, you weren't allowed to listen to secular music. Oh, no, 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 no secular movies growing up. Uh, I heard about Star Wars, wasn't allowed to see it. You know, uh, we were limited what we could watch on TV. It was an interesting pattern for some reason. Dukes of Hazard was okay. You know, Daisy Duke and all. I don't know why. Wow. That got through through the family filter. That was a popular one. But it was, you know, there was there was a lot of controls about what we were allowed to do. Now, of course, by the time I got to got to high school, I would listen to the radio a bit. So, you know, Def Leppard, Belle Bib DeVoe. I was trying to teach myself how to program new jack swing beats and stuff (laughs) like that. But but mainly it was the Christian music until my uh, until my late teens, early twenties. Well, that's interesting too because I I know a lot of people who who including my partner who come from a very Christian upbringing and also there was only Christian music. But then there are some artists that kind of slipped in there, like U two. I know is really mm-hmm. big with a lot of pe- a lot of evangelicals because there's that big spiritual element. I yeah. mean, were there? Were there, there those bands that were that you were into that were sort of like on the on the cusp of like secular and uh, Christian music? Um, not until after high school. I mean, I went out of high school straight into Bible school at the Canadian Bible College in Regina. And so that was the year Octoon Baby came out. So certainly oh, yeah. there's a lot of folks on campus that had that album. I had never really listened to U2 before. And so that was sort of my first introduction. So I remember, yeah, I, I borrowed somebody's cassette and listened to it. And I was kind of like, oh, one, that's kind of a cool tune in that. But I didn't really get it. But in the years after, absolutely, I went on a big U2 kick and had all the books and sort of was reading the biographies and their travels and certainly. But a, a lot of it for me also was coming out of high school into Bible school. And that was a year that was really difficult for me. I, I basically had a nervous breakdown to sort of real mental health struggles. And so I, I, I sort of veered off into there's some Christian artists, uh, groups like Daniel Amos, 77's Adam again, who were sort of the alternative Christian bands who sort of pushed a lot of these boundaries a lot more. A guy Mike Knott, right, who was very open about his struggles with substance use and stuff like that, but still writing Christian music. So that was sort of the beginning of my path into, you know, stuff that yeah, was was different. That sort of delved into more human reality, more human emotions, and sort of really drove me as I was sort of trying to still build as a as a songwriter, as a performer, my own music. So, was there a point at some point uh, along this journey where you said, like, where you did finally sit down and? binge watch all the star wars and get like did you have you seen all i just i'm just trying to think you know people are like wait has he not seen star wars like i gotta know have you seen it now i i've seen it so in when i was in like i think was it maybe like grade nine or ten or something like that i was babysitting for this one family and they they had a video cassette of uh, return of the jedi 
And the, so the kids were watching that, but they were just watching like the first third, I think up to the Sarlacc pit or something like that. And then they'd rewind it and watch it again. So I got to, I do that part pretty well, but it wasn't, I can't remember what it was that I finally would have sat down and actually watched, you know, Star Wars, uh, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi. I, I did see a few of the eighties movies. I remember seeing Goonies, uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, uh, Howard the Duck. Somehow, wow. was, uh, that was, that's like a junior high sleepover with my movie. with my friends from Strathcona Christian Academy. Uh, somehow, that got past the parental filter. We watched Howard the Duck, uh, but so that was pretty much it. You know, birthday parties, sleepovers. That was when I actually got to see something. We got a we started renting a few movies as a family. You know, renting the VCR and the movies in the late eighties. Started watching like Princess Bride with my folks, and you know, a couple things like that. So eventually started opening up to the larger pop right. culture. So um, how, how would you describe your relationship with the church present day? Um, I'm pretty much an avowed atheist, or at least a very, very hard agnostic at this point in my life. So, you know, it was like I said, you know, I struggled a lot growing up. I did not have good uh, emotional or psychological development. I had severe anxiety. So that year at Bible school, moving away from home, going there, I was in no way equipped to handle that. So that year I had a pretty hard crash, nervous breakdown. And frankly, in some ways, I never quite recovered from that for a very long time. But that sparked a journey for me where all of a sudden I kind of went, okay, you know, all of a sudden I'm struggling with my mental health and these things that are going on and nobody here has anything to offer me. You know, I was sent to a Christian psychologist who told me I was oppressed by a demon and, and all this crazy stuff, right? You know, and just went through this, you know, before I finally got to see an actual psychiatrist, but then there was just the pressure and the stigma not to take, you know, psychiatric medications or, you know, fear about all of that stuff. So it led to a very long period of struggle for me. And I just realized all of a sudden, you know, wait a minute, if I don't fit here, and you know there's and the folks here don't have anything for me maybe there's something to question about all these other things for all these other people that that, that are excluded or all these other rules that are put in place so it became a, a period of questioning for me where i'd be slowly pushed a lot of the boundaries became more and more liberal shall we say in my faith until the point you know where in my my mid-30s or so i just kind of hit a point where i went well you know what none of this me, I, I have no literal belief in any of this anymore. So there really is no point in continuing at that point. I stopped uh, at that point as attending a, an Anglican church where I was just sort of enjoying the ritual and that sort of thing. But I just went, you know what? That, I think this is it. And so from that point on, I've sort of been completely outside. And so uh, how, how do you get into politics? You know, because it, it seems to me that, uh, you know, the the you know the politics of religion uh may have played a role there in sort of um distancing yourself from your faith um i mean did that play a role in your um political um awakening for lack of a better term you could say that certainly you know the values and principles that inform my politics were largely influenced by the christian faith i grew up in and certainly by my and a lot by my journey out of it 
you know, because I grew up in a very conservative vein of it, right? You know, it was full, you know, I remember a guy from our church in high school who ran for the Reform Party, and it was all that sort of stuff. It was very, very conservative, and my parents have certainly remained quite conservative. But that journey for me of coming out of that extremely conservative fundamentalist view of faith, dealing with my own challenges and realizing what it meant not to fit in, and what that experience was like certainly colored a lot of my view of how I came to see politics and what my values and principles are as an individual. And certainly a lot of, I think the, and uh, I mean no disrespect to anyone, any Christians when I say the mythology of Christianity and certainly of the gospels and, and the man Jesus himself, which is where I went and found, tried to find comfort as I was sort of struggling through a lot of this stuff myself. You see a lot in the in the New Testament about it being about helping people who are marginalized, people who are broken, people who have been shut out of the system. And you know, and that was where he put his focus and his energy and his critique was directed to the establishment and the people who held power and the people who ran the systems who were doing the excluding. So that formed a lot, you know, of of my core values that I bring now to my progressive view on politics where I find myself today. How did I actually get involved in politics? Well, that's there's a couple things there. You know, uh, towards the end of my time trying to work as a musician, so around 2007, 2008, I'd gone through some fairly serious health issues. Uh, I'd had some another sort of uh, mental health episode that sort of had put, I had gone through a longer term treatment program. I came out of that and I needed work. I got a job working at a music store along in the Quay. And so while I was working there, I had some idle time I would be on the computer and I was on Twitter and I started following federal politics under uh, Prime Minister Harper, you know, around 2008 and watching how they operated and sort of their new approach, very antagonistic with the media, very toxic in their approach to other parties and politics and in their communications. And I just it fascinated me because uh, I, you know, I as much as I love music, I have also always loved words. I was a voracious reader as a kid. That was one of my places of respite. That was my place of safety. I read a ton of books. And I also discovered that I loved to write. I enjoyed writing essays. I loved crafting words. So watching the communications from the Harper government, I saw what their behavior and I kind of went, huh, this looks like what they're trying to do is just create as toxic a space as possible. Because if they create that toxic space, then all they got to do is keep activating up their 30% of the electorate keep feeding them red meat, keep them really agitated. Everybody else goes, this is sick. I don't want to be here. This is toxic. I don't like this place. So they get out of the political sphere and then they get to keep winning. And so I, I watched that very closely. I was uh, following Andrew Coyne at the time, had some interesting sort of thoughts on democracy. And I I know I've learned more, more about it. <laughs> Facial I, expressions. I still, <laughs> yes. I'll be honest, I still have some respect for the man. He's, 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 he's a good he's writer. He is. And he had some interesting ideas about democratic reform under the Harper government that I thought were positive. So and I was following a number of other political journalists. And so that that sort of fascinated me, sort of draw me in. So when I went back to school, uh, first I started out, I was doing an education degree and I was going to be a high school English teacher with a music minor, again, sort of working on, on my loves and sort of thing and the things expressed, I discovered I was good at explaining things to people. So I was like, okay, that's good work. But I ended up veering off and moving instead to do a BA in professional communications. So, and I, so I was interested then in getting into political communications. So that was in 2012, I started that degree. And that was around when we had the PC leadership race with Alison Redford. 
And so I saw a number of folks I knew from the artist community, from music and the theater and other things here in Edmonton, go and join the PCs because they said, you know what? The only way we're ever going to have any influence in this province is if we, if you can't beat them, join them. And nobody can beat the PCs. So let's at least join in, get involved, and try to get a more progressive leader in. And of course, Allison Redford, running for leadership of the PC, tried to run a campaign where she painted herself as a very progressive conservative. Now, of course, we know what the reality of that was after she got the role. That was not the case. And so I watched that process happen. And I thought to myself, you know what? The only way this changes, the only because then I saw a lot of people that were really disappointed, disillusioned, and just disengaging. And it's okay, this only changes if we get more people in who actually show integrity in politics. People need to have something that gives them some hope, something that makes them feel that there is a real possibility for change. And while hey, change is probably a long way off in you know budging this government in trying to uh, unseat this empire that the PCs had built. But hey, it's got to start somewhere. So I was like, yeah, someday, you know what? I'm going to run for provincial office. And I'd also been involved in the condo board at my building and had worked on that. And I had to organize a bunch of owners to remove somebody from the board because we had concerns with how they were operating. And it was successful in that. So I kind of went, okay, I'm good at organizing people. I, I can do this sort of thing. So someday, yeah, that's where I want to go. So that was in the back of my head all through working on my comms degree. I did most of my papers, my assignments on political communications, political advertising, all that kind of stuff. And so 2014, I finished my degree. And so I graduated. And also I had been doing that full time while working full time. So all of a sudden I had about 20 hours a week back. And I kind of went, well, what am I going to do with this time? So I'd been getting involved with the local bike community. I was a winter cyclist year round. And so I got involved. We'd been doing some different stuff. And so I just through idle conversation ended up planning this sort of uh, this sort of outreach thing where during bike month, June of 2014, uh, we created a community blog. We put up profiles of local cyclists about who they were, what they loved, where they biked, that sort of thing to sort of try to counter the anti-bike narrative and the antagonism from drivers and got some media coverage and it was okay. That was kind of cool. Kind of flexed my chops a little bit as a, as a communicator and then got invited to join the Edmonton bike coalition, which is a group that was advocating for the, for funding for the construction of a bike lane on 102nd Avenue here in Edmonton. So I became kind of their comms and spokesperson and spoke to city council. We were successful with that, got that funding. So found myself in December of 2014, I got time on my hands. And I had applied on some jobs at the Alberta NDP as a researcher and that sort of thing. Uh, didn't get no call back or anything, right? Because, of course, they didn't know who I was. I was I'd never been part of anything there. Uh, but I reached out then through a friend who knew some folks there and said, well, hey, could I volunteer? I just want to learn a little bit. So, hey, I will volunteer my time as a communications person. I just want to learn a little bit about the party campaign. And so I sat down for coffee with one of their organizers at the time and said, well, hey, would you be interested in being a candidate? You've been involved in some community stuff. And at first I said, no. You know, I was like, I, I don't know enough. Uh, you know, I, I don't feel like I really understand all of the pieces yet. And secondly, I was pretty I was pretty sure that, you know, they wanted me to put be the name on the ballot in Fort Saskatchewan or something. And I was like, no, when I run, I'm going to run where I live. So I was then going to volunteer as a communications person on Janice Irwin's federal campaign in 2015, when she was running for the federal NDP. And I went to a volunteer organizing meeting with her, with her, and you know uh, her her communications guy was there, and he said, you know, oh actually, you know, they're looking for someone to run at Edmonton Center. Oh, 
And my ears kind of perked up. I went, oh, really? He's like, yeah, well, here, let me introduce you to David Egan. So he brings me over and he introduced me to David Egan, who's in the you know, MLA for Edmonton Calder. And uh, so I talked with David a bit and he confirmed. He's like, well, here, let's, let's sit down and chat. Some. So he gave me his number. A couple weeks later, David and I went for coffee and we sat down and he sort of said, you know, I, I explained to him, well, you know, this is, I, I don't know about this. I don't feel like I know enough. He said, well, if you saw some of the folks across the aisle, you, you wouldn't be too concerned. He's like, you're, you're a smart guy. You can, you can pick this, you can pick this stuff up. I know you, you can handle what's good. It's there. And it's, and this is the kind of thing you can do. I said, okay. And then secondly, he said, you know, and like, don't worry about it. You know, you're running against uh, Lori Blakeman, who has been in the seat for 18 years. And I ran against her and I couldn't win. Darren Bills ran against her and he couldn't win. So you're, you're, you're not likely not going to beat her. But, you know, she may retire. She's likely to retire in four years. So run a small campaign now. Get some experience. Get your name out in the community. Spend the next four years building on that. And if she retires from the seat, you've got a good chance then. I said, OK, I can do that. So that was the goal. I had just gotten a new job at the city of Edmonton. So it was just like, okay, I will just run a low key campaign. This will be a quiet thing. It'll be over in a month or two. And then I'll go back to sort of, you know, working on this other stuff. And that'll sort of be the long-term goal. Before we knew it, I had, they'd hired a campaign manager. We had a, we found a suite office space right on 104th street promenade in downtown, very prominent location. I had a volunteer coordinator who was running, who was planning to run for a federal campaign nomination. So she brought all of her friends out to, to uh, door knock and volunteer on the campaign. And all of a sudden we had this <laughs> pretty sizable operation. We had the orange wave, Rachel, we, uh, the day that Rachel sort of uh, did the debate against Prentice, you know, the next day, all of a sudden we have people on the doors. Yeah, I've been voting PC all my life. I can't do it anymore. Yeah, we're going to vote for you and Rachel. And boom, all of a sudden, you know, six months after I had become a member of the Alberta NDP, I was elected as an MLA. And so to, it doesn't sound like you really expected to win, except maybe, um, you know, close after the debate with like, like on election day, what, what, what was going through your mind in 20? So uh, I, I knew the possibility was there, but I didn't allow myself to entertain it. Right. I just didn't think about that. You know, I was just like, okay, we just keep showing up, go out door knocking, keep campaigning, keep doing the thing. So, you know, election day, you know, I was out with my then girlfriend and we were kind of just doing a little bit of pulling the vote. And it was just kind of, and then that night sort of sitting there with her and my family at the campaign office, my campaign manager, watching the results roll in, you know, when the first poll came in and yeah, we won that one. Oh, okay. Next one comes in, won that one too. So this kept going and we'd had about eight polls of, you know, 30 some come in and we had won all of them. And, but at that point I'm kind of like, okay, well, I guess we're going to see where this goes. And I pick up my phone and I'm just kind of scrolling through Twitter and I see a tweet from the Alberta NDP, David Shepard elected MLA Edmonton Center. And I just, I just turned to my girlfriend, I, I, I'm elected. <laughs> so it was kind of just, it was kind of just stunned. It's like, okay, it's real. So, you know, it's like, okay, hug the family. And it's like, well, we better get over to the West and then a few blocks over and get down to me. So I think I was one of the first elected MLAs to actually arrive at the West End. So ended up talking to a few reporters and stuff like that. And it's just this incredible energy in the room. And I was just floored because to be, you know, I, this really meant a lot to me then. Like I was coming in really in some, I don't know if I would say naive, but certainly 
looking at this and so it's like this is the democratic process this is everything i dreamed about in being the chance to actually be there elected but not only elected elected as part of the first progressive government in the province of alberta like that just i was just stunned at the opportunity and the possibility so it was uh, it was it was quite an incredible feeling the next day it was kind of got up yeah had to do a bunch of media and kind of just sort of looking like my like this is going to be my salary like compared to what I've been making right from a musician up to a comms guy starting out and then so it, it was a lot to take in at first but I was incredibly excited right now you start, sorry you start thrust into the spotlight but like were you ready for that because you know you, you, you know mentioned it's struggling with social anxiety you know in your year. yeah of course so I mean and that's true. And I still did. And I still was struggling with that in many respects. But, you know, one of the things with that I developed to cope with social anxiety is the ability to put on a pretty good performance. And so certainly learn that as a musician, you're up on stage, you're just putting on a performance to a group of people, you are projecting an image and a persona. And that is a very effective protective mechanism. And one of the other things I've sort of discovered, I think, is that I developed an ability to talk very well because, you know, the social anxiety, all of that mind racing a mile a minute, you know, I got very good at sort of pre-rehearsing conversations and figuring out what I was going to say and sort of trying to read micro reactions from people and that sort of thing to try to deflect and, and defend myself. So I think all those things came into play. And just because I was so excited about the role and really saw this as, uh, you know, a really big opportunity and so important that, yeah, I was able to put all of those things together to project a pretty good public image, even the, but, but, you know, if you talk to my staff, you know, I hired shortly after, they'll tell you, I, t I was like, oh man, I can't stand the small talk and the smoozing. And it's just, that was where I felt incredibly anxious. And that took a lot longer for me to get comfortable with that side of things than sort of the public performance. Now you went from in 2015, this guy that was going to run against a, almost an immovable object. Like you were, you're not supposed to win. Then you win. Fast forward, you're like the you're the health critic in a global pandemic, right? <laughs> so I'm just wondering, because like there's a lot of excitement and jubilation, and holy crap, this is happening in 2015, and all this like uh sort of bright look toward the future. And I mean, it didn't go that way in a lot of ways. I'm just wondering, was there like this moment of shock of reality of, of the job where you realize it's just thankless, it's just, it's super hardworking. And like, it's one of those things where you think you're going to change the world and it's hard to do. And then now you're this health critic in this, like I say, global pandemic. Like There just must have been some sort of transition between like, yay, I'm an MLA to holy shit, I'm an MLA. So I think I can honestly say that there's really never been a point in the six years that I've been in MLA where I'd say I felt the job was thankless. You know, at, at certainly, yes, there have been times where it has felt very difficult. There have been times when it's felt like, you know, there's far more demands being put on me than, you know, uh, understanding and appreciation coming back. But on the whole, throughout all of it, I have always heard from folks in the community about what they about what they appreciate about the work I do. 
And so it's it's been an incredible opportunity that way. You know, during my four years on the government side, of course, uh, I was a backbencher. You know, I, I wasn't in cabinet. I didn't have any roles in the legislature or any leadership positions. I did chair a few committees, you know, and had that opportunity there. So a, a lot of my focus during those four years actually ended up being projected out. I spent a lot of time, first, my first year I spent it, you know, okay, first six months really, I, I sat down with Claire who I had hired in June of that year and I said, look, we're going to find every community event that's happening this summer and I'm going to be there. We're going to reach out to every nonprofit organization that's, that's here and I'm going to go and I'm going to meet with them, talk with them. So just really wanted to establish our presence and that connection out of the gate. Then there was that opportunity when I saw when I started meeting with uh, the different African, Caribbean and Black communities and I'm like, okay, that is going to be a priority. I am going to show up to as many of their events and as many of their things as possible. And really that was a lot of that building out. And with that then came, frankly, it was it was very rewarding work, you know, getting the official recognition of Black History Month, you know, in uh, 2017, you know, and all these other things that I got the chance to do and work on. So that was very fulfilling. The lowest point might have been, and I, and I, yeah, I don't know if that's the best phrase to use, but certainly it was very challenging coming out of the election in 2019. So I think some of our folks had seen the writing on the wall. They kind of knew what was coming. Uh, I had less of a sense of that. And again, I was sort of adopting the same approach I did in 2015 in the election. I'm not really going to think about the outcome. I'm just going to try to work on this as hard as I can and hope. But certainly, you know, it felt tough during the campaign and certainly seeing the results and uh, on election night, uh, I got the call and I was asked to go over because I was the closest to the convention center to be the first one from our party there. And I had to be the first one to stand up on that stage and respond to the fact that we had lost. And that was hard. And it did feel kind of disheartening and frustrating because it's it's challenging, you know, as a backbencher, you're not the one that gets to make the decisions. You're not the one that gets to make the choices. You You put in your efforts and you play with the team, but then you sort of reap the results. So it, it, it was hard trying to sort of figure out, okay, well, what is this going to mean being in opposition? What is my place going to be here? What am I going to do with this? What is my place going to be within our new caucus and the different shape of things? So when Rachel sort of uh, reached out to each of us and said, okay, you know what, we're going to appoint critics. Let me know what you'd be interested in. I thought really long and hard about it. And I like a challenge. Uh, I like having something I can really dig my dig my teeth into. And I am also a systems thinker. I'm very fascinated by how complex systems operate. And I knew I wanted to be on the front lines of the scrap with Jason Kenney and UCP. And I knew that healthcare was going to be, be one of the areas where that was going to happen. So I asked, so I put health at the top of my list and a couple others. And I was incredibly honored that Rachel put that faith and respect, had that respect for me, put that faith in me to appoint me as health critic. So certainly I sat down when I, when I first realized that I went, oh my God, <laughs> there is so much stuff to try to understand here. You know, so I sat down and I talked to Sarah, their former minister of health. I talked with a couple of her chiefs of staff and tried to map the landscape, get a sense of what was going on. And But yeah, it was kind of okay. Let's let's dive in and do this. And it was sort of daunting. But, you know, it didn't take long before the momentum started building. We started seeing what the government was doing. And so I was trying to follow 
trying to sort of sink into the role and kind of be strategic and think about how he's going to approach this. It really started to heat up, I guess, uh, at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020, when we saw the landscape start to form for their war on doctors in the province of Alberta. I think it was November 2019 when they uh, wrote the bill that allowed them to throw out the contract right like they they wrote a yes. law that allowed them to break the law essentially essentially that basically what they say is well we always had the power to do this we just wanted to clarify that but right. yeah they wrote a law that basically said they can tear up the contract with physicians in the province of alberta anytime they like physicians can't but the government can't so very lopsided thing so certainly that was a lot of people kind of went huh but it was actually after that when they came to the table with doctors for negotiation on the next contract because the agreement was gonna expire in March. And they, they came to the table with about 10 proposals. Now, let's be clear, I did not know a thing about doctors billing practices. I didn't know how it worked or anything, but I started getting emails. Neither from did the health saying, minister, so you're good. <laughs> so I started getting emails from doctors sort of saying, hey, something's happening here and sort of trying to lay out what the problems were with these proposals. And so I started calling doctors and kind of talking with them a little bit and trying to understand. And then I brought it back to our team and said, hey, there, there's something here. There's something building. We need to pay attention to this and sort of see where this thing is going. So that wrapped up sort of uh, going into February 2020. And I sort of made that one of my focuses. So, And that was the first real relationships start building, I started doing as a critic. You know, I'd done a little bit on the cancellation of the community lab hub here in Edmonton and talking with folks in labs and stuff. But now all of a sudden I'm connecting with doctors, talking with them. So of course, end of February, they tear up the contract with doctors. And just as we're coming into this global pandemic. So at that point, yeah, I started to feel the momentum building. But at that point, it was sort of more, it was kind of a little bit of excitement because you're kind of like, okay, the file is heating up. Uh, this is what I'm here to do. I got my gloves on. Let's get in the ring. Let's let's make this thing happen. But it, it was fascinating, certainly watching as the pandemic built coming into March, um, seeing what I was hearing from doctors and medical professionals, and then seeing, you know, that they are still taking this incredibly pugilistic approach with doctors. Of course, that was in early March that we saw Tyler Shandro go and yell at a doctor in his driveway. And it was at that point for me that I kind of went, okay, the gloves are off. Because to be clear, I had tried to take a respectful approach, approach up to them. You know, when we first came in, okay, I know Jason Kenny, I know the UCP, I know they are going to do some things that are not going to be good, but let's, I will give them the chance to sort of lay out what that is. You know, I will be respectful with the healthcare minister and how we approach things. But that was when that tide started to turn, when I saw how dirty they were willing to play. And frankly, how hard they were trying to demoralize doctors and beat them down, because that is what they were trying to do. They were trying to put them into a corner where they felt that they had no hope, no opportunity, and just simply had to knuckle under and take whatever the government gave them. And I said, forget that. I got into this to stand up for people. And I know it sounds crazy to say, we got to stand up for doctors. I mean, yeah, they're well paid and all that. But really, this was some egregious behavior on behalf of a minister and on behalf of a government. And I felt it was really important that we draw that line in the sand. I mean, it was, we've had a few doctors on this show, right? And again, like, I don't think we've, I don't think we've either of us have spoken to a doctor that's pretended that they don't make good money. 
you know, uh, yeah. one, they should. I mean, look around. Like if you haven't, if you haven't like realized that doctors and nurses and at all in the healthcare industry probably deserve to make a decent salary at this point, I don't, I don't know what's going to convince you. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, we have, sorry, we, we've had quite a long chat with you already. So I would, I don't want to like rush to too many topics here, but I want to talk about uh, sort of present day pandemic and whatnot. And yeah. the, the, the best summer ever, right? Like obviously there were, there was, um, I guess I want to ask, like, it's hard to be the government, right? And it's hard to be the government when something like this happens. And I think that uh, the opposition probably understands that, you know, to be the person in charge right now would be difficult, and you're going to get blamed for a lot of things and, and that kind of thing. But that that being said, there's always, there's always been... Um, this sort of rush by the UCP to tell us it's better than it is. Right. And, and I guess before we get really too hard into that, I want to ask you just about governments in general, like, is there a tendency from government officials to just want to sell the best scenario? Right. Like, like the NDP, for example, uh, was, was all too eager to take the $37,000 job creation total from economists about the pipeline. Right. And say like, this will create 37,000 jobs. Now, obviously, much less deadly promises, right? Like by say, because it's never going to be that many jobs. I, I guess I'm just saying like, what is the motivation between, behind a government saying like, it's going to be as good as it's going to be. Like, th- this is the best it's going to, this is the best summer we're ever going to have, as opposed to just saying, hey, go out and try to live a little bit more normally now the pandemic is going away like is it just straight from their uh, government's tendency to want to sell what we all want to hear does that make sense i hear you and you know speaking as somebody who studied communications and worked in that field of course you want to put the best face on the decisions that you make you want to you want to play up the positives you want to you know let people know what the values are you see and sometimes that is very true that is the decision you are making because you truly believe those are the best things other times there are decisions that you have to make and you're going to look for the best way to sort of help people understand what why you're making them now different governments are going to have different variations on how they play those things right and on how they choose how far let's say they're going to choose to stretch those facts uh or misrepresent the facts as some might you know with jason kenny we know that coming into his best summer ever he had just had hit the third wave in which he had again repeated the same pattern from the second wave of waiting until the last minute, refusing to take action, the wave getting far worse than it had to before he finally had to take the action that everyone had been asking him to take for weeks. And he had done that had happened not only with that, but then also the rebellion within his own caucus. So his own MLA is calling for his head, going off the reservation, the Speaker of the House for Pete's sake, you know, signing on to this letter calling for no more public health restrictions. So he had taken a hell of a beating and deservedly so. So he needed something to try to turn the page. He was looking for political redemption. So the other thing we've seen about Jason Kenney is simply the man does not back down, right? He, he is always, always going to go for the, for the hardest swing. So he rolled the dice and he bet big 
with on his best summer ever. And let's be clear, this is a pattern that had been happening throughout the pandemic. We had the first wave, and certainly we raised some concerns around that first wave, you know, uh, impacts on long-term care, certainly the Cargill meatpacking plant, you know, uh, some of those things where, you know, there were certainly some questionable things on behalf of the UCP. But in general, they did the right thing off the bat. Right. They they followed the public health orders. They implemented them. They shut things down. They protected everybody. We had relatively low case rate, even for the even though we did have some very tragic deaths. But it wouldn't take long after that, that, you know, we saw the true colors. And I could see early on this government did not want to do what needed to be done. They wanted to do as little as possible which is why they sat on their hands and put out as little money as possible until the federal government stepped in with larger, you know, individual financial support in a number of other areas. So they wanted to race back as quickly as possible to get things back to normal because they have a massive agenda of transformation that they want to force on the province of Alberta, and they did not want to be derailed. So we saw that over the summer, they were racing to get back to it again in the second wave in the fall. You know, they've got their healthcare transformation, they've got their labor law changes, they've got their stuff they want to push through. So they're holding back, holding back, don't want to get back into COVID again. So we saw that second wave far worse than it had to be, shut down over Christmas. And then that incredibly tone deaf moment where, you know, Aloha Gate, then they all take off. And then again, we saw that rush to, to lift restrictions in February because they wanted to reset. They want to get away from the political damage they've done to themselves with their own arrogance and entitlement. So they raced to lift restrictions in February. Even people are saying, you know, there's variants, there's issues, there's stuff out here. So through March, April, we watch again, the case numbers climb and it getting worse, getting worse. Caucus rebellion, all that stuff. You know, another massive wave, another major set of impacts. And then we get into the summer and they try to, okay, this is the big swing. We're going to bail us out of this once and for all. And we've seen where that has brought us. So really what it comes down to, it is Jason Kenney fundamentally, you know, does not want to govern. He wants to rule. He wants to impose what he wants to impose. He wants to force through his agenda, but he is utterly unwilling to be the kind of leader that Albertans need, which is someone who is willing to pivot who's willing to set their agenda aside for the public good and put public health and safety first. No, Jason Kenney, it's about holding on to power and forcing through his agenda. And we see where that's gotten us now. Now the whole world, aside from a few jurisdictions who proved to us that it was, they picked right and we all picked wrong, but the whole world, uh, Western world anyways, attempted the whole, like we're gonna learn to live with this and. We can't get rid of COVID, but we can mitigate it and keep hospitals down and whatnot. And I don't blame, I don't hold much blame for the UCP for making that decision in the spring of 2020. The Western mm. world was making the same decision. I believe the NDP would have done exactly the same thing because it was pretty sweeping what we did. Since then, however, and on this show, we have talked to several experts, including developmental biologist Gosha Gasparovitz from Calgary, who has consistently been right about her predictions about what will happen and consistently suggested that COVID zero at a year and a half ago was the only way to deal with this. 
I guess my question would be, you know, I, I, you know, hindsight's easy, right? It's easy for all of us, including the NDP, to look back on on the last year and a half and said, this is what we would have done. And I definitely believe the NDP would have listened to doctors about masks and restrictions in October as opposed to December and not had a best summer ever campaign and all of those things. But I find it hard to believe that any government would have done what we really needed, which was actual full-scale lockdowns for a period of time to get case counts to zero and whatnot. And you, you talked about pivoting. Does the NDP have what it takes for the future, the next time in 2023, if they're elected, to make the pivot in such a way that it's like beyond anything we ever thought we'd have to do? Like, would we, would they have, does do you guys have the, what's the word I want to say here, the guts to, to really listen to the act? Like, cause I'm, I'm worried that, you know, once you get in, you're having to please people. Right. And that's the same thing that Kenny's trying to do. He's trying to please everybody. And then he does nothing. Right. So is there a line for a government where like it's, you know, you just ignore the political suicide aspect of it and do what's right. So it's difficult to, I guess, prognosticate on a future event. Right. You know, if we have a future pandemic and what might happen and how you might react to that. What I can say is, you know, working with Rachel, you know, as uh, as leader of the opposition, certainly I've got had a chance to get to know her a lot better now than I did during our time in government. You know, when she was the premier, obviously she had a lot on her plate, so didn't get to spend a lot of time. But from what I've seen of Rachel now, she is an incredibly principled woman. And she is willing to sacrifice political capital to do the right thing. And the situation that we were in, you know, with COVID, certainly we saw in that first wave, we had public buy-in. People were there. People were willing to follow. And what really, I think, and so that allowed government to take the kind of action that needed to be taken then. Now, coming out of that, unfortunately, we saw very, and almost immediately, Jason Kenney pivoted, stands on the floor of the legislature, immediately starts talking about, oh, it's, it's an influenza. It really only affects the oldest people and starts immediately, you know, homeless people are actually maybe could be immune, kids too. And so immediately starts downplaying and taking away the gravity of everything and basically eroding the public buy-in that we just spent months building because he literally decided then that's it, it's done. We're not gonna have to do this again. So he decided, okay, finally, now I can say the quiet part out loud, what I've been thinking all this time. And that immediately then eroded our ability to respond in a similar way again. I mean, now, I believe he literally so said their first wave lockdown, air quotes, was stupid, right? Well, he came out after and said, you know what, I, if there's anything I regret about the first wave, he doesn't, you know, not the people that died needlessly at Cargill, not the long-term care outbreaks. What he regretted is that he shut down small businesses, you know, and so it's, it's very clear that, you know, again, he did not want to govern during COVID-19. He wanted it to go away so he could get back to the fun stuff and the stuff that he wanted to do. And as a communications person, and as someone who has done things like I spent several summers at a place called Crows Lake Bible Camp, leading kids on out trips in the wilderness. And what I learned about leadership is if you need to take people on a difficult journey, you need to have their trust and their buy-in. So you have to do a lot to sort of bring them with you, hold them with you, 
so that you can get them through some difficult things, through difficult terrain, and maybe follow you in directions where they don't know where we're going. It's not a lot of fun and it kind of sucks, but they're willing to follow you because you have shown leadership and you have built that trust. Jason Kenney immediately eroded any of that that was there, and he continued to do that over three consecutive winners. So what I will say is I think if we'd had someone like Rachel in that seat, who I think is far more principled, who has shown through things like the Fort McMurray wildfire and other things that she is able to be that kind of a leader, we would have had far more public buy-in to take the kinds of measures that potentially would have been needed to work towards, yeah, perhaps elimination of COVID. I can't speak to exactly how plausible that is within the Alberta context and geography and the other factors. Certainly there's experts that said it was possible. You know, or at the very least, to, as you said, to take much more prompt action, been much more for willing to, for, to have government step up and provide actual support to individuals and businesses in those situations that we could have, I think, had a much better and much stronger containment. Well, I definitely don't see Rachel having given permission to the people that th thought that COVID was no big deal. Continue, like after, you know what I mean? Like to stand up there and yeah. be like, yeah, you're right. Wasn't that bad? Like it that outside of both sides of their mouth was absolutely atrocious. Um, I want to ask you, uh, do you have a, a much of a working relationship with Dr. Henshaw? Um, no, no. Do you not, know her at all? Like, do you guys? So we, we as a caucus, uh, I believe we had, I think we, I'm trying to think back. We had one briefing with Dr. Henshaw early on uh with with rachel myself i think uh, christina gray was there as labor critic i think that was the only one i think we were promised another one later on and it didn't materialize so no we 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 do not and it's been unfortunate one of the results of this and the way the premier and his government have approached this is they have very much politicized the office of dr hinshaw because they repeatedly used her as a shield and put her in a position where she had to defend, I think, government policy. And as a result, you know, our work in the opposition, then she does get swept up in that. So it's it's unfortunately, I think, created more of an, an antagonistic situation than needed to be. Is she still a victim of this? Like we we talked about this for a lot of this show, right? She's been a, early on. We felt that she was a victim of that shield. 20 months but, in, she's providing that shield willingly as far as we're concerned. Right, Jeremy? Yeah, well, Dr. Uh, Gasparovitz uh, yeah. <laughs> mentioned, uh, you know, this sort of like uh, princess in a castle uh, narrative that sort of developed mm -hmm. around her where she's just captive by the government. And I think, and, and I'm interested in your perspective from someone who's um, maybe not exactly on the inside, but closer than we are. Um, like, do you think it started out that way that she was sort of held captive and then she just sort of embraced it or like, like what, what's happening with Dr. Hinshaw? Like what, what, what do you see her trajectory as? I'm a bit loath to speculate too much on personal motivations on, on her as an individual. I mean, I, I get it. You know, it's uh, it is it's it's pretty dramatic on the political side of things. And those of us who follow politics, you want to understand the motives. And it's certainly I imagine there are a lot of Albertans who really want to understand why she has made some of the decisions she has or why she has stood by at times and, you know, provided tacit at, 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 le at the least support for for some of the decisions that Jason Kenney and his UCP government have made. 
Oh. I'd say, you know, the open for summer plan leading into the ending of, you know, proposing to end all testing, tracing and isolation. It is very hard to, she, she has been quite clear that those were her decisions. She said she owns those. So I can only attribute those to her and I can't fathom why those decisions were made. Certainly we have never seen the actual data and rationale that were promised that to justify that. And what has been released, and a lot of experts have looked at it and said, this is incredibly thin. This does not justify the kind of decision that we saw. So I imagine at some point there are going to be a lot of books written about this period in the province and looking at many aspects and perhaps looking at Dr. Hinshaw herself. All I can say is she's in an incredibly difficult position. It's really, really hard place to be in the public eye during this sort of a situation. It's probably not what she ever expected in taking on the job. And I don't say that to justify anything. I am deeply troubled by some of the decisions that have been made and some of the things that she seems to have supported but I'm not in a position to explain sure. how or why that took well, place. Go ahead, do you Jeff. think she should resign? That is not a call that I'm making personally or that we are making as a caucus. But certainly I think we have called for a public inquiry. We've called for a all member committee, all party committee in the legislature to look into these things. And I think those would be the opportunities to perhaps bring folks like Dr. Hinshaw to the table to provide more information to and get a better understanding. And certainly based on the findings of those, then that might be the time to sort of make those sorts of calls or decisions. Now on the topic of resignations, right? And I just like, this is a great thing to transition to, to talk to, because I want to talk about Shandra Copping, but, um, just quickly on the last thing, like I, the way I see it is somebody's messed up enough that their should, heads should have rolled by now, right? And like Shandro got kind of tossed under the bus, but either if, if, if Hinshaw owns these decisions as her own and she has made decisions that have led to this much death and the, prob and the people that are, there are uh, leaders like Kenny and people who are going to basically their careers are going to end in 2023 because of this pandemic why why would they if i don't understand how she still has her job then like somebody's screwed up so I, if kenny's so innocent why isn't he firing people and if he's you know what i'm saying so like anyways that's what i want to say about that but shandro resigned the our perspective as a province for a lot of people was that he was simply just sort of the scapegoat and and whatnot you guys had called for Shandro's resignation officially as a caucus. I know Rachel had, had at least said it before. Um, were you satisfied? I said it yeah. multiple times. Were you times. satisfied with that uh, as a response to this summer and this pandemic? Or do you want more? And what are your thoughts on copying um, in the role? I'd say yes and no. I mean, ultimately... Everything that Tyler Shandro did as the Minister of Health, at least in terms of policy decisions, right, and uh, legislation, et cetera, was all exactly what Jason Kenney wanted him to do. 
Jason Kenney had a very clear agenda for the healthcare system. It was laid out very early on, starting with me. Well, frankly, he was talking about it before the election. And then, you know, laid it out in the McKinnon report. We had the Ernst & Young review of AHS. It was all the dominoes were set up and they were falling over in the order that he set them up. And Tyler Shandro was the one who was just simply pushing them with his finger. You know, the issue that I had with Tyler Shandro uh, was the manner in which he went about that. And again, that began with his fight with doctors and physicians. So the incredibly condescending, you know, fists up approach that he took to dealing with them, you know, again, that sort of attitude of, you know, we're going to force these people into line, we're going to beat them down, demoralize them to, you know, impose our will as a government, you know, the energy that he brought to that role is how dismissive and entitled he was, you know, him going and yelling on the driveway of a doctor personified that. So acting in such poor, such poor behavior, such bad faith, that for me is what galvanized ultimately uh, my calls for Tyler Shannon to be removed as the Minister of Health. Certainly the policy was egregious, the legislation was, was, was terrible, and the behavior towards healthcare uh, workers was toxic. But that, that was all dictated by Jason Kenney, right? That was all sort of the formula. But, you know, Tyler Shandro, in my view, took that a step further <laughs> with, the, with the tone and attitude that he brought to that role. So certainly we did call for at numerous points for him to be removed from that role, if only to try to bring a more respectful tone to, uh, to how they worked with the healthcare system in the province of Alberta. Ultimately now, am I, was I happy and satisfied to see Tyler Shandro shuffled out of that role, to see him resign from that position, as he said he resigned, and then moved over to Minister of Labor and be replaced by Jason Coppin. Ultimately, I don't think it makes a difference, right? Let's be clear. All of the decisions that were made over the COVID-19 pandemic, and that's what we're talking about here. Should somebody take responsibility for this? Should somebody resign? All the decisions that were made about policy on COVID-19 were made at the cabinet table. Tyler Shandra was there. Jason Copping was there. A number of other UCP ministers were there. And Jason Kenney very clearly dictated what those policies were going to be. So every single one of them is culpable for the mess, the crisis, and the impact of their mishandling of the COVID-19 pandemic. And not only them, as, as me and my colleagues have been saying a lot over the last little while, every single UCP MLA who has sat back and let that happen and has refused to stand up on behalf of their constituents in the rest of the province of Alberta. They were happy to stand up and undermine public health measures. Not a single one was even willing to stand up during the month of August and speak publicly about the rising fourth wave. So ultimately, you can, you can, yeah, you can remove Tyler Shandro. And you know what? I think a lot of healthcare workers, uh, certainly doctors, probably rejoice to see him gone because of the toxic relationship he had put in place in terms of negotiating and working with uh, with healthcare workers and others in the system across the province of Alberta. But ultimately, Jason Copping is still going to follow all the same dictates of Jason Kenney. He is still going to represent all of the same things. I and mean, let's remember, he's the minister that told workers at the Cargill meatpacking plant, your workplace is safe. The same day that he had gotten information very clearly stating that it was not. So he's the labor in minister. Jason Copping, I think we'll simply have a much. What's that? Yeah, is a much blander representation of exactly the same attitudes and policies and approaches 
that we've seen from Jason Kenney in the UCP so far. Now we got about 10 minutes left and I want to ask uh, one, we'll talk about one thing and then we'll see what Jeremy has left to ask and then we'll uh, let you get out of our hair. But uh, my question would be about sort of, sort of, I guess we all talked about privatization before. We, we kind of all know that a lot of the goals behind the UCP has been to sort of um, transition a lot of things to privatization and we feel of course that on our perspective is that undermining the public system helps to do that these are things that we've talked extensively on the show about what i want to ask you about is uh the quite obvious and scary surgical backlog that we have right now about ten thousand canceled surgeries right at this point just from the fourth Mm -hmm. wave alone um it's pretty clear the UCP is going to use privatized, like private clinics and private surgical clinics to try to catch that up. Our point of view would probably be that that's not a very good idea. <laughs> What's the NDP's point of view on that? And what would you do differently, if you, anything differently, to catch back up in surgeries in a scenario where obviously uh, being 10,000 behind is hard to catch up no matter what you do? So absolutely, this is an incredible crisis. Let let me be clear, no government, I think in the history of the province of Alberta has done so much damage to our public health care system as Jason Kenney and the UCP. I mean, even outside of the COVID-19 pandemic, the amount of chaos and disruption they were causing, that was, I think, uh, doing a lot of damage to the ability to provide care. Add COVID-19 on top of that, they're mishandling, and they have just crushed it you know, crush the system under their heel. And so it's going to take a lot to recover. So certainly the crisis now in surgeries is a big one. So yeah, the uh, Jason Copping as Minister of Health has said that yes, the absolutely use of private facilities is on the table to catch up on the surgical backlog. You know, Rachel was asked about this recently at a press conference. And what Rachel said is that basically we, if we, we do not necessarily oppose the use of some of that if that's what is needed because we've got people frankly who have cancer surgeries and other things that have to get done now of course those a lot of those are the ones that have to be done within the public system right folks staying overnight uh, all that sort of thing currently that is not allowed in a private facility so certainly we've got a number of crucial surgeries that need to happen in the public system and we absolutely want to see the investment and the money and the dollars put in to do that there and to make maximum use of our public system to address that surgical backlog. If there is the opportunity, I guess, for us to deal with some of that crisis backlog in private facilities, we're not necessarily averse to it, but we would want to see some very careful, very solid legislated framework in place to contain that. We do not support any kind of growth, any sort of normalization of greater use of private facilities. So all that to say, you know, we are in a crisis moment. I don't think it's fair to deny Albertans who are in desperate need the opportunity to get the care they need. But we have to ensure absolutely that that in no that that is very carefully hedged in to only this precise moment and that there would be no use of this emergency that this government has created. This is on them. This should not be used to drive their privatization agenda. So we would absolutely oppose them on that front. 
Do you think that they, uh, <laughs> this is such a silly question, but because uh, I think the answer is obvious, but uh, do, you, do you think that they're just fl- like that they are sort of under discussing the level of which they want to introduce normalization to privatization and that that's been one of their main goals throughout this? And the, what do you, I, do you think that there's even to the point where they've used the pandemic to help shape what they want for a healthcare future of Alberta? It's difficult to say the extent, but certainly we have seen that throughout this pandemic, Jason Kenney has not for a moment paused his agenda for the healthcare system. Uh, he Again, he drove his fight with doctors right into the first wave and continued it throughout. We've seen, you know, coming, you know, coming out of the coming into the second wave, you know, they talked about firing 11,000 frontline health care workers, they maintained through the summer their plan and demand to cut wages for nurses, even as we saw a fourth wave beginning to rise. And we had other crises. So frankly, you know, he's, he's not ashamed to continue to push agenda. Now, if you're asking, did he let the pandemic get worse to take advantage? that and create more care. That's something I wouldn't, I wouldn't speculate. They will take, Jason Kenney takes every advantage, every opportunity to drive the agenda that is behind it. And his, at times, ver- verging on sounded almost like contempt for public health care at times, right? 100%. The way he talked about, you know, public surgeries and public surgeries, you know, before the pandemic, before the election in 2019, sort of saying, you know what, yeah, there's a bunch of folks, you know, they do a surgery, they go and they have coffee, they put their feet up and then they relax before they go and do another one. But, you know, those private surgeries, damn, those guys are like, yeah, clipping along, they just do one after the other. Like, right. just, the man has a fundamental disrespect, I think, for a public health care system. And we have seen from him and his ministers an utter lack of understanding of the complexity of the system, how interconnected it is. And they have really thought they could just go and carve it up into bits and pieces and contract this bid off, contract that, but, uh, you know, cut funding over here and somehow just have a better system come out the other end. And I am afraid of when I hear the new health minister, Jason Coppin, talking about, well, you know, uh, one of my goals is to permanently increase the, you know, urgent and critical care capacity in our healthcare system. Because I can tell you, they do not intend to go out and build a whole bunch more public ICU beds. Right. <laughs> that is not their goal. You know, so are they then looking at what other pieces of the system they can farm out to privatize individuals to put a, a private contract so that they can keep the public facilities just for crisis care? Is that going to be their excuse? I wouldn't put that past them. So certainly, I think we're going to be watching very closely to see what the actual actions are behind the very vague platitudes we've heard from Jason Copping so far. Jeremy, do you got anything, uh, questions for our uh, friend here? Mo is texting me and (laughs) the producer's just slamming down the fist. I got things to do. Well, I, you know, I will say I did want to ask about carding, but I think it would be very unfair to give you uh, three minutes to respond to that question. So, You'll have to come on again, and we can talk about carding and whole whole lot of other. Issues. Absolutely, uh, if at some point you want to have a conversation about anti-racism and some of the issues around hate speech and other things in the province, I'd be very happy to get into that. Just once, we'd like to in the last, you know, we'd just like to have a guest on and not have to talk about uh, COVID crises 
for the rest of our <laughs> pandemic life. Yes, like our yeah. life, you know? there because there are a few other crises that um there are yeah, lots like, of other issues. We and and this this podcast was born out of the pandemic, right? So um it's been a lot of pandemic talk, but our goal in life is to try to talk about other things that are coming down the pipe is when uh if and when the NDP win in 2023, pandemic or not, you're gonna have your own crises to face and your own big challenges and and that kind of thing. So these we you know, we'd love to have you back one day to talk about uh, imagining a better world into the future. Absolutely. I would love to do that. Awesome. Well, we really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, we never, ever get to all the things we want to talk about with guests because, uh, well, we're chatty. So that's the way it is. <laughs> but uh, I, we know it's busy uh, in your world. So to give us this much time on a Saturday morning, very much appreciate it. I hope uh, I hope you guys continue to to fight. And uh, good luck with uh, the next two years of opposition. <laughs> I, I mm. hope you uh, oppose well. Thank you for coming on, my friend. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. It's that time in the show, you guys, where we thank those of our patrons who go way above and beyond anything we could ever hope for. To Darius Bergard, to Nicola Nicola, to The Big Red Machine, to Dave Baumiller, and to our beautiful and good friend, Chris Derwold. We love you guys. Can't, can't do it without you. Appreciate all of our patrons, all of our listeners. I hope you guys are staying safe out there. Uh, if you're not vaxxed, you're not listening to this show, but go get vaxxed. Love you guys. We'll see you next week. <laughs> Bye-bye.